God, that you're a God who, who loves us and protects us and preserves us. You give us so many good things, and one of them is your word. Uh, Lord, help me today be cl- to be clear. Help us to listen well and uh, put your words into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we remember that Revelation is a book that is highly structured. And we remember, too, that uh, this long second vision is, to, is broken up into four uh, overlapping sequences. They're not consecutive, they're, they're overlapping or concurrent, and they're cycles of smaller visions. Or different camera angles of the same Isuzu D-Max action replay, if you were there last week. Um, <laughs> these these uh, action replays of... Uh, reality of how things are. These visions are different camera angles of an action replay of the same reality as the will of God is unveiled. That's what revelation means, the, the unveiling. Now today in chapters 12 to 14, we read of a great conflict. Again, it's the pictures are painted. That's, that's our job, is to try to paint this picture in our minds. And like the, Revela- uh, like the rest of Revelation, we're not to read them literally. Our job is to try to work out what this letter meant to the original readers who are being persecuted under imperial Rome, and then what, is, what does it then mean for us as we live today in 21st century Robertson? This great conflict is presented to us firstly in three scenes. And first, the, the scene one is the birth of a child. So, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and, carried, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his, to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Wow, what a scene, hey? What a scene. Why would you want to go to the movies when you can have this? Isn't that fantastic? Why would you want to go and see the Meg when you can get this here? Um, so let's try to picture this scene, shall we? Let's try to visualise what's going on. I don't think that's too difficult for us to do. It's fairly straightforward. But what's it, what's it a picture of? What does it represent? Now, the woman in this picture, and we'll get some more clues as we go through the passage, represents the people of God. The 12 stars on her head is a bit of a giveaway as to her identity. Remember that number 12 is significant in Revelation uh, as the people of God. But right now in the chapter, I think she represents Israel. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, she's the church or Christians. The next thing we notice is this enormous red dragon. Now, don't think cuddly mascot of the St. George Illawarra dragons. Don't go there. That won't help at all. Not that type of dragon. What we have here is Satan, we're told in a few verses' time. It's the devil. And note, too, that he's got great and enormous power and wisdom. 
It's a terrifying picture as he sweeps his tail across the sky and a third of the stars fall to the earth. Again, reminded last week, Satan is not your mate. He's no one you want to party with. But this mighty, terrifying dragon knows where the real threat to his power lies. So look at verse 4. He waits to see the child the woman would give birth to so that he can devour him. Gruesome, isn't it? He wants to remove the threat. And in verse 5, we're told who the child is. The one who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now, do you recognise those words? Where do they come from? Early in the service, perhaps? Psalm 2. Well done. Thank you. Psalm 2, yeah. And what's Psalm 2 about? Not a rhetorical question. I want an answer. What's Psalm 2 about? Sometimes in church or in youth groups or in, in children's ministry, there are three answers. God, Jesus, Bible. It's one of those. What's Psalm 2 about? Jesus. Thank you. Well done. We're going well. Um, it's about God's Messiah, God's appointed king. It's about Jesus. Uh, we actually sung it in the first song, you might remember. Some of those words came from Psalm 2. So when we read verse 5 back here in Revelation 12, well, here's a picture of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. But before the dragon can harm the child, the child is caught up to heaven. That is, in one pretty short sentence, it's very short, and a very brief glimpse, what we have here is the summary or a glimpse of the life of Christ. Right there. When verse 6, the woman who I think now represents more broadly the people of God, oh, she's in trouble and she's in danger and she flees to the desert where she's cared for, for uh, by God for a significant but limited period of time. Remember, 1,260 days or 3.5 years from last week, that's cut short, a limited period of time. So that's sort of scene one. Uh, dwell on that for a minute. Don't you? Think about that, how that story goes, how that scene presents itself. We'll come back to that in a minute or two and try to make sense of it. Let's look at scene two. <coughs> War in heaven. The dragon is not happy about missing out on the child and, and it getting snatched away from his grasp. He's still pretty determined to get the child and so he goes to heaven to pick a fight. Let's have a look at verses 7 to 12. And there is war in heaven... Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, but the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short." So again, let's picture the scene. There's a battle scene. There's the dragon, the devil, up against Michael and his angels. But it's not a long battle, is it? For the strength is all on one side. 
The dragon is defeated, a bit like the dragons in the NRL. Anyway, um, no, no, there's one more joke for that going, coming soon. Um, in this battle, there's very little doubt about the outcome of what the outcome would be. Still like the dragons in the NRL. Anyway, I'm, I'm having a go at the dragons, aren't I? Um, they're playing tonight. I thought they were playing last night, and so this joke would work much better because I was very confident they'd lose. I even wrote it down. I'm still confident. Anyway, with that, that same confidence is in heaven too as we hear about this great battle. Uh, the odds were never in the dragon's favour. It's a short victory. He's taken on God. The dragon is then cast out of heaven. Uh, it's a great victory. A great truth is established, though, and that is that heaven is secure against the devil and all forces of evil. The result is that Satan's threat to, God, threat, uh, to God's power is gone. But then cast your, mind, cast your eyes back to verse 11 again. Notice how this victory came about. Did you see it before? How does this victory, what, 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 is the, what are the means of this victory? Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's the Christian's testimony. So the devil has been overthrown and defeated, how? By the death of Jesus, and that's of course the heart of the gospel, isn't it? But it's not just the death of Jesus the devil has been overthrown and defeated by the words of Christian testimony. The words of, the words of Christian people. Now, don't get caught up in questions of time here. Uh, that's that's not, it's not an issue for God. It never has been. Time is our invention, not God's, if you can put it like that. Of course, it's God's in some way, but you see what I mean. Let's try to put that aside. We need to get this. The, the overthrow of Satan is accomplished by Christ's death on the cross and the faithful testimony of Christians. That's what we need to see. And so we read the words in verse 12, Rejoice, heaven, rejoice. The battle is over. But watch out, earth. Watch out. Look out, earth. Not because Satan has won, but because he has been thoroughly beaten and he knows his time is short. Now, what are we seeing in this picture? What are we seeing here? Uh, what have we learnt about reality as it's unveiled before us? Well, we see that the powers of evil are still widespread, but these powers are in their death throes. They're dangerous but they're doomed. That's scene two. Let's go to scene three. Still in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, a picture of the dragon in his death throes. So 12, 13 to 17. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, uh, so who had, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. 
Well, so he's lost the decisive battle. And now he wants to take it out on the woman, the people of God. So just like those who don't follow Jesus, this is last week, those who do follow Jesus must expect to be the object of, object of Satan's fury. He's enraged that he's been beaten, that he's the loser. He can't take it out on Jesus anymore or God's throne anymore. He's been banished out of heaven. But in the short time he has, he is intent on taking it out on God's people. But did you see what happened to the woman? She's given safety and is cared for. She's nourished by God. They're actually beautiful pictures and images from the Old Testament story of Israel. But take a look at chapter, uh, verse 14 with me. A bit Let's look at that a bit closely, uh, closer. Because what I, what I think we see here is a picture of your life as a follower of Jesus. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she'd be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Know that the devil is out to get you. Be aware of it, but know also that you're cared for, that you're nourished and that you're kept safe, safe by God. Verses 15 and 16 are the dragon's futile attempts at the woman. That's the point of verses, those two verses. The, the pictures do get a little bit messy and they're a little bit hard to work out the meaning of all the details. But the point is clear. The dragon's efforts against the woman are futile. God has her. God's keeping her safe. And in verse 17, the pictures get a little mixed up again. And again, I don't think that really matters. The, the Christians are now the children of the woman, those who obey God's commandments and hold the testimony of Jesus. But the reality is the same. The dragon continues his futile war against them. So that's, that's the end of, let's just call it Act 1. How about we do that? We'll call it Act 1. Uh, let's stand back now and try to get a bit of a bigger picture. What, what are we being shown? What reality are we, is being unveiled before us as we look at this book of Revelation? Well, we're being shown that there are spiritual forces of evil. Now, these days, uh, what people call materialists are fewer and far between. They are. That means that life is just about matter and that's it. You know, in the last census, the majority of people, the great majority of people, still believed in a God and still believed in spiritual things. What we see here is that there really are spiritual forces that are at work in the world and that are opposed to God's purposes. And so don't be surprised if you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself opposed. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised to find opposition to God in this world, whether it's in the media or whether it's at work or whether it's just socially. The reality is that those forces that are opposed to the purposes of God are doomed. Yes, they're active, but they're doomed. But something else we see in this picture is that the people of God are involved in this conflict. So think for a minute. What are the real ways you experience the fury of the dragon? The real ways you experience the fury of the dragon. Think for a minute. And fury is the right, right word, isn't it? Because he's, he's mad at Jesus. And he's mad at you and me. <laughs> if you follow Jesus. If you belong to Christ, 
He'll do anything to harm you, and not just physical harm. What he really wants to do is to drag you away from following Jesus. He wants to drag you away from Christ. And he doesn't care how he does it. Now, in our culture, he's probably not going to, it's probably not going to be worshipping idols in the local temple down the road. Uh, it's probably not going to be that. It's not, probably not going to be worshipping Caesar and all that goes along with that. But more likely, it's going to be loving money. Or it's going to be not making weekly church attendance a priority. Or going out with a non-believer, if you're someone who's at that, that, that stage in life. Or, or working so hard that you've got no time or energy for the things of God. See, what Satan does is that he tempts you. That's what he does. He, that's how he works. And so don't be surprised if you've become a Christian, even recently, that Satan's tempting actually gets worse. It gets harder. The evil one is furious that you've changed sides and joined the side of the lamb. The message is resist him. Stand firm. Overcome him. Realise that your faithfulness to Jesus is going to be effective in his final destruction. Okay, let's go to chapter 13. Now, I'm not sure if anyone's made it. Actually, I have seen a few movies about Revelation, and they're usually really wacky. Um, <laughs> if, but if you're going to make a good movie about the book of Revelation, oh, you've got to include this chapter. It is an absolute ripper. So let's, let's have a read of it in a minute. Uh, it's, it's, again, the picture continues, and what we see is how or one way which the dragon does make war on the offspring of the woman on the earth. Okay, so first we meet a beast out of the sea. So 13, 1 to 10. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a, mortal, a fatal wound, and the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had, been given, he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have, been, have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he'll go. If anyone will be, is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. So let's have a look at this beast. Because chances are you're going to meet him in real life. Notice the connection between chapters 12 and 13. 
Look at the end of chapter 12. Well, it's actually the first verse of chapter 13 in the NIVs. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and out of the sea comes this beast. Uh, the point is the dragon calls or wills the beast to come. So this, this, that is, Satan does not make war on us directly, contrary to popular opinion and wacky movies. He doesn't do that. But he uses his henchmen, like the beast from the sea. And look what he's like. He has ten horns, powerful. He has a blasphemous name. Now, for Christians reading in the first century, these words would have grabbed their attention, pricked up their ears. See, emperors like Domitian, Nero and so on, insisted on being called Lord and God. They even had it written on their coins. The beast is given power by Satan himself, the dragon. And again, for first century readers, this was Rome. This was the Roman emperor, uh, the beast. And notice the beast had a fatal wound. In the first century, there was this rumour going around, uh, that, and one that Domitian just loved too. You can read all about it. Uh, that Nero, that's, that's the, the Caesar before uh, Domitian, that Nero had inflicted a mortal, uh, fatal wound on Domitian, but that Domitian had come back to life, had some sort of, and, and was therefore some resurrected god. Now, why wouldn't Domitian love that? Fantastic. Who wouldn't want to be a resurrected god as a, as a Caesar? More, all the more people could, could worship you. Now, perhaps that's what's being referred to in, in verse 3 here. Anyway, the beast is worshipped, and in doing so, they worship the dragon, saying, who is like the beast? Friends, this is what the dragon does. This is what the devil does. He produces henchmen bent on usurping, replacing, if you like, or usurping Christ's authority and who win followers who worship him. Now let's look a bit closer at what the beast does. Look at verse 5, chapter 13. He's allowed to exercise authority. In verse 6, he blasphemes God. And in verse 7, he's allowed to make war against Christians uh, and conquer them. In verse 8, he's worshipped by everyone. Oh, that is, except followers of Jesus. Those whose names are written in the book of life. Now, I'm not quite sure what sort of picture you've got of um, living in the first century as a Christian. Maybe you've got, a, as we've worked our way through Revelation, you've got a bit of a picture there. Uh, first century under the Roman Empire. But what we've seen is that it was a life of oppression. It was a life of danger under Roman authority, living with the enforced policy of worship Caesar or you die. That's what it was. You get thrown to the lions. You get burnt alive. The beast working his evil, usurping God and playing the role of the devil's henchman. Friends, that, that's also a picture of what this world is like. Perhaps today the devil's powers are a little more subtle. But we have those who usurp the place of God and who would claim the allegiance of people that people only owe to their maker. And when such powers appear in this world, well, we ought to recognise them as such. And what are we to do when they appear? Have a look at the last phrase of verse 10, chapter 13. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. That's what we're to do. 
Well, next we see another beast. One more, one more beast. Uh, chapter 13, 11 to 18. Let's just read that. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is a man's number, his number is six, six, six. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Here's our second beast. I love it how it calls for wisdom, but so many people have been so dumb when it comes to this number. Dear, oh dear. Let's have a look at this beast. Well, he resembles religion. Do you notice that in verse 11? It's like a lamb. So he resembles religion, but then he speaks like a dragon. His words come from the devil. What does he do? Verse 12, he makes people worship the first beast. Now in the first century AD, for those readers, this beast was the system of emperor worship. But of course this beast rears its ugly head in every age. Uh, one example is what we might call false religion. But I guess what everyone really wants to talk about here and wants me to skip to, isn't it? Want, you want, you, yeah, let's be honest here, you want me to talk about the 666, don't you? Yeah, I want to talk about it too. It's okay, so we're good. Um, I reckon a person's understanding of this number is probably not a bad indicator as to whether someone's understanding of Revelation is wacky or sensible. All right? um, it's like your opinion of Bruce Springsteen music lets me know whether I can trust you or not when it comes to your music choices, or perhaps in life in general, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, just kidding. There's been lots of attempts to try to work out and have a go at what this number means. Uh, for example, people reckon that Nero Caesar's name uh, misspelled and sort of put in a certain way can add up to 666. One. Uh, people say too that this passage is a prediction of Adolf Hitler. So if you again mix up the letters of Adolf Hitler and add them up in a particular way, you'll get 666. Uh, back in the 16th century, a number of the reformers worked out a way that the names of the various popes could add up to 666. Uh, the Roman Catholics return serve and they argue that Martin Luther also can add up to 666 in some way. It's a little bit silly, isn't it, I think? Um, and of course it's entirely subjective. That's what it is. You're just taking a stab, you're having a guess. Now what we, what we have again is number symbolism. That's all it is. And that's all through this book of Revelation. We remember that the number seven is the number of completion and perfection. Okay? It often represents something with God or his son, but not always, but mostly completion or perfection. Six is just less than that. 
it just falls short. That's what six is. In fact, six is a human number. We read in verse 18, it's man's number. In other words, this is the mark of sinful nature. Man's number, sinful nature, it's just falling short. That's all it is. And falling short in every way. Six, six, six. So what are we going to make of this beast and his mark? What, is, what does this picture say? What does this picture say about our world and our lives? Well, let, let's recognise the secondary way that Satan uses to divert our, our allegiance from God. That's the first thing we're going to see. What we read, although it's graphic, is what life is like. It's reality unveiled. We're not meant to go searching through history to try to find the beast. No, no, this is, this is what life is like at any age, at any time, and in any society, in any circumstances, there will be beasts. That is, those who the devil himself is using to draw people away from God to themselves. And that could be any type of person, any type of role, or whatever. They defy God. They blaspheme his name. They drag your allegiance away from him. And the word here is do not receive their mark. Do not receive their mark. Do not belong to the beasts. There are many who would seek to influence us as Christian people. Whether they intend to or not, the word here is do not be sucked in by them. And notice too, if you do not belong to the beasts, you will suffer for it. God does not promise prosperity and all goodness and kindness and, and, uh, and a, a rich and wonderful life. He does not promise that. He does not promise, as I say to the youth ministry sometimes, sunshine and lollipops. No, no, no. When we follow his son, he says, take up your cross and follow me. All right, well, let's, let's, have a, let's see how we're going. Uh, chapter 12, we talked about this great, this, we read about this great conflict and the victory over the dragon. Uh, chapter 13 described an expression of the dragon's rage and fury. And when we get to chapter 14 here, verses 1 to 5, we see the consequences of heaven's victory. It's a beautiful passage. Let me read it to you. 14, 1 to 5. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sung a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women. For they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the, and the lamb. No, la no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. It is, it's a beautiful image, isn't it? Beautiful picture. The Lamb on Mount Zion, the place of God's King. Remember Psalm 2? Here it comes up again. And here Mount Zion represents heaven. The 144,000, remember, 144,000. It's just a big number of God's people. 12 times 12, 12 tribes of Israel represents 12 apostles, God's people, New Testament, Old Testament, 1,000, just a big number. Okay. 
these 144,000 had the Lamb's name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. That's the mark they have. Of course, it's not literal. It just, it's, that's their identity. God stamped them as his. The name of Jesus on their forehead who belonged to him. God's people who follow the Lamb. And they've got a moral purity about them, don't they? See in verses 4 and 5. They're described like this because they've been forgiven. They've been washed clean by God. And notice the contrast between these people and those who worship the beast. There is a contrast, isn't there? You see, if you follow Jesus, your life is different. Jesus makes a difference. Now have a good look at this passage. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It is. Have a good look at it, because I hope you're there. I hope you're there. Among the 144,000, I hope this is a picture of you. Well, we've very much run out of time. Um, I'll be going for a while. That's all right. We're not finished yet, so keep going. Um, <laughs> I'm going to skip a bit, though. I hope you're okay with that. Verses 6 to 13, we've got three angels and three messages. I want you to read that at home. That's your homework. That's not too hard. Let's jump over to this last scene. It's in chapter 14, verse 14. And it takes us, as often Revelation does in these sequences, it takes us to the end of all things. It takes us to the inevitable future for those who persist in hostility to their creator, it, 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 who insist on wearing the mark of the beast, who insist on remaining in their sinful nature, who will not have the name of the Lamb and of his Father written on their foreheads. So let's read verses 14 to 20. It's a very different picture than we've just read. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he, he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them onto the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's quite a different picture, isn't it? It's a terrible picture. It's a terrible picture of a terrible reality. Great, the great cosmic conflict will finally be resolved. But it'll only be resolved one way. There's no doubt about that. Now have a look at this picture that day. Now, of course, there's, they're not literal descriptions. There's no grim reaper coming. Uh, 
Now, they're pictures. I don't think we could handle pictures. I don't think we could handle images of the real thing. But friends, as we take this image in, well, you'd have to be a fool to go on living with the mark of the beast on your forehead, wouldn't you? You'd have to be a fool to go on any longer without the name of Jesus written on your forehead. How about we pray? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we again, we thank you for your word. As parts of it today that yeah, are, are tricky. We pray that you continue to give us wisdom as we, as we read and take it in. And, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray that you would, as we read just at the end of chapter, chapter, um, uh, chapter or the middle of chapter 13, Lord, we pray, pray for patient endurance and faithfulness. Amen.